This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Monday, November 6, 2023. Wow. Dornall, how was your whole entire month of October? <laughs> uh, my month was amazing. I'll spare you all the gory details, but... Uh, we had a we had an in person geek gab. Daddy Warpig was in town uh, to celebrate my wedding, so I'm really happy about that. Uh, what else can I say? I needed a break from the internet, and I got it. Yeah, you know everybody needs a break from the internet now and then. It just doesn't seem to happen. <laughs> Once you're addicted to the stimulation, it's over. Um, and actually, the funny thing is that brings me almost immediately to the subject of our show because uh, speaking of needing breaks from the internet, there are a lot of people on Reddit who need a break from the internet because the, the OSR Reddit has banned all discussion of Acts 2, Adventure Conqueror King System 2. They have banned it. You can't discuss it on the Reddit for whatever reason. For reasons it's, probably not even worth getting into, but it's horrible. It's, it's insane. <laughs> I mean... And uh, I just... Uh, I'm looking at it, I'm nodding, going, yeah, yeah, that figure. Reddit is, without a doubt, the worst site I've ever been on. Now, I have to note, I've never been on, like, the Something Awful forums. I've, I've never been on, you know, some of the really, really renowned dumpster fires out there, but... Reddit is, without a doubt, the worst site I've ever been on. Because it's basically run by, like, five people. Five people moderate um, 55 to 60% of all the subreddits. And so they run the entire site. It, it's worse than Wikipedia that way. Uh, but, yeah, you're just, like, the level of... Penny anti Picayune power tripping they get up to on Reddit is so, so pathetic. So everybody here's had some college training. Is that right? Some college yeah. experience? Yeah, absolutely. Reddit is, you know that guy in your philosophy 101 class? who only took the class to argue every point with the teacher to to have those fun arguments and maybe demonstrate how smart he is. That is Reddit. That is the entirety of Reddit is made up of that guy. <laughs> and they're all just as insufferable. I, I use Reddit because they have some cool art subreddits on there, but... 
discuss things with people. I don't, uh, I don't get involved on Reddit. The closest thing I get to getting involved in Reddit is when I see something particularly dumb and I go, I jump on Twitter to make fun of it. That's, that's my Redditing is I make fun of them on Twitter occasionally. There have been worse uh, internet sites and worse communities for lack of a better word on the internet but reddit is the current king there were there's another site that is actually worse but i can't even remember their name and i, and I feel grateful for it you know <laughs> i don't want to dig into my memory to remember their name I, I feel like my brain has been saving me that that it is actually you know my brain is jumping in front of the bullet for me that that it's uh, not allowing me to remember it. And I'm just going to allow that to happen and not even think about it. Be like, yeah, okay. Is you it, know, is it I, Tumblr, I don't need perhaps? To no, no, I remember Tumblr. I, I use Tumblr the same way I use Reddit. I'm subscribed to some art people and, and you know, every now and then I, I, I jump on Tumblr. Although I may have actually stopped using Tumblr because they used to ban nudity and now they allow nudity. And they went from a complete and total ban from nudity. And the last time I was on there, they actually had ads with nudity in them. And I'm like, wow, that is a that is an absolutely huge turnaround. I I don't get on. And I'm not talking about like, you know, Bella and Conan, the uh, beautiful illustration where she's topless, the, you know, painting not that I'm, kind I'm of nudity. About, not that kind of nudity. i'm like you know if i wanted that which i don't if i wanted that i would be described to completely different sites i just uh it was throughout my feed and i'm like wait a minute i was just here a month or two ago and there was none of this i know because i i picked who i subscribed to and they were spamming my feed on Tumblr with with nudity. I, I don't know if it was it wasn't quite you know softcore stuff. It was supposedly you know artistic stuff, but it's still not things I was looking for. It's and I'm like, well, that makes this site completely unusable to me because. That's not what I'm here for. So I may have actually tumbled my last. Is that what they call using Tumblr? Tumbling? Uh, no idea. That's, uh, that's one thing they call it. Um, but I, was, I used to be subscribed to um, some great uh, art uh, microblogs on Tumblr. Um you know, there was some, uh, there was this one that was sword and sorcery pictures, and he did a lot of stuff from Esteban Maruto and uh, uh, all these other really, really good um, black and white art and uh, paintings and just really cool illustrations. Uh, Earl Norum uh, did a lot of the Conan covers, things like that. But now it's just, uh, my feed was nearly unusable. It was just so often, and, and of course, the ads. And, and it's not like it was unattractive, but that's just not what I'm using Tumblr for. That it, at least on Reddit, if you want 
that kind of stuff, you have to go looking for it because they've buried all of it. They kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. So unless you deliberately go looking for it on Reddit, you don't find it, which I'm happy with. I'm like, that's cool. It literally does not even show up in search unless you deliberately go checking off boxes and changing settings and looking for it. Reddit does its best to pretend that there isn't anything like that on Reddit, and there never was. <laughs> that Reddit has never allowed, uh, you know, nude pictures on the site. It, it's shocked. Reddit, the site, is, is shocked. It's, it's like that guy who whose mouth is wide open and his monocle is popping off. He's like, what? On Reddit? I well, can't I believe. never. Yeah, that, that's the whole site's attitude towards nudity. It's like, you found what? I can't believe that happened on Reddit. So, yeah, I'm just as happy with that because I, I, I love illustrations. I'm on a cyberpunk art subreddit. I'm on a, a steampunk art subreddit. Um, on a fantasy art subreddit, but yeah, you just uh, and and the amount of AI art on there is so far at least very very low. Um, and some sites that used to have great art that you could go find are now just completely swamped, so swamped with AI art that they're unusable. Pinterest, unusable absolutely drowned in AI art. You just, it is almost impossible to actually find something that isn't AI art on Pinterest. Um, and uh, DeviantArt, which used to have a, despite name, it used to have a ton of great artists on there, like legitimate big time comic book artists are on there and other really good artists are on there. And then it became really, really swamped with AI, and they debuted their own AI tool. And now they've started including in their search box a include AI in my search returns. And so it may actually be becoming usable again, uh, except in their suggestions, which used to be really cool and now are swamped with AI art. So you have to know what you're looking for and go for it. Um, but sounds Reddit like a so minefield. Far, yeah, Reddit so far hasn't been swamped by AI art unless you're specifically in the like mid journey or stable diffusion subreddits and you're looking for AI art. So what if, um, what if I were, what if I were in, what if I were in a role playing game subreddit and I wanted to know the latest or ask some rules questions on uh, one of my favorite game systems, the adventure conquer King system. Could I do that on Reddit? Not in the OSR subreddit. <laughs> and that just happened like a week and a bit ago it might have even been last week but it might have been a week and a half ago yeah they just like right in the middle of the kickstarter all discussions of axe 2 were banned well, it's not just it's not just axe 2 it's uh it's any game i've ever worked on and um and my name so i'm like voldemort i can't be named <laughs> oh dear <clears throat> thanks my to the uh my name is a killing word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we should we should say your name for everybody uh, who's just tuning in randomly. Um, welcome back to the show, Mr. Alexander McCreese. Uh He who shall not be named except on the best uh, gaming and RPG shows on YouTube. 
Thank you for having me on. Um, that was it. I didn't mean to cut you off, Daddy. We're big, but I did. No, I'm okay. I was just going to yeah. say, uh, big news at the front is Axe 2 is currently in Kickstarter. Um, and for a while there, I was wondering if it was ever going to make it because it seemed like things were going on. Uh, it, it it seemed like the longer the project went on, the longer the project would be going on. Now this now I thought um, I thought this project started when Wizards of the Coast decided to shoot itself in the foot over the OGL, but this has been a project a longer running project than that. Is that right? Yeah. So initially, I I was going to do a new edition that was going to be primarily a consolidation of what I had written. Um, and then in January, when uh, Wizards of the Coast revealed themselves to be the Benedict Arnolds of the role-playing game industry and betrayed us all, um, I decided I no longer wanted to have my game stuck on the open game license because even though they backtracked, um, that didn't mean that wouldn't mean that at any moment they couldn't change their mind and deauthorize it again. And the fact that they had put it under the Creative Commons didn't do me any good because I wasn't using the mechanics from the Creative Commons. I was using mechanics from their old SRD and my books didn't say Creative Commons, they said OGL. So it seemed like a very bad business move to stick with a corporation that was uh, expressly intent on, you know, uh, asserting monopoly power and, and screwing over their licensees. Um, unfortunately, that meant I had to do a lot of work to get the game off of the OGL and it's taken months and months. Um, yeah, apparently we had a nice summer, but I didn't see it. Oh dear! Oh, we did, in fact. Yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> uh, so this this grew because of that extra work. This grew from into a huge project, and you spent all that time doing it. Uh, so this is like a true second edition to the game. It is a true second edition to the game. Yeah. Now it's still ninety eight percent backwards compatible. Um, no one. I mean, I'm I'm literally running Sinister Stone of Sakara, the first edition adventure with Axe second edition, it's fine. Um, and that'll be true of all the adventures, most of the supplements. So there's no um, there's no particular uh, uh, attempt to um, force people to upgrade, right? Like it isn't that kind of a thing. It's just, I'm a better designer now than I was 12 years ago. I've written a lot more content. Um, I've broadened the game, I've deepened the game. And, you know, I want to put it all in a couple books where people can have access to that. Because right now, you know, you're like, oh, I need to look in Axioms issue three for this article I want and Axioms issue seven for this and the Heroic Fantasy Handbook for this. You know, and it, it just becomes inconvenient after a point. It demands too much system mastery. So it's better to bring it all together. Sure, sure. Similarly to how, uh, you know, later editions of D AD&D came out of all those dungeon articles. Exactly. Dungeon Magazine, Dragon Magazine. Um, man, so we had you on way back when you did the uh, Dwarf uh, expansion book, Buy This Axe. That still gives me a chuckle. Yes, 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 yes. That was uh, one of my most successful books. Um, people, It was the first book I've done where I wrote the text, the fluff text in character. People really loved it. So um, I might do a, a second book in that series. Uh, for elves. Elves? Yeah. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck, but I, I don't think elves are very popular around here. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. <laughs> the dwarves definitely, um, the, 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 the dwarven loyalists definitely uh, showed up in force to make by this axe a win. 
I don't know if elves still have that much love or not. Um, you know, one thing I one thing I thought about is that when I was young, like when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I loved elves. And now that I'm in my late 40s, I love dwarves. And I think it's actually a life age thing, right? Because when you're young and you're filled with the boundless energy of youth and, you know, enthusiasm for life and you read about the elves and their ageless beauty, you're like, yeah, that's going to be me. And then, you know, when you get into your mid 40s and you've got a pot belly and you just want to get home and drink a beer after a hard day at work, you're like, I'm basically a dwarf. So. <laughs> I was going to say almost the exact same thing. I have this had the same experience. And, uh, my first uh, my first Dungeons and Dragons character almost certainly was an elf. And uh, after that, after I played that character, I don't think I ever looked back. So my first character was a thief with a strength of seven. And I died to a baby white dragon that my brother put in the adventure. And so I died to him. Oh, what a jerk. Um, oh, my, uh, oh, since we're talking characters, that's actually my namesake. My, uh, my handle on the internet is Dornal. Because you know what? It's not a real word or a real name. So ah. nobody, else, nobody else gets to take it. Yeah. So yeah. I just stuck I've just stuck with it ever since even though you know the characters along in the past. So mine was from the old uh, 1980s game um Archon. I don't know if you remember that. I never played that one, no. Oh yeah, it was great. It was like chess except that when you move the figure into to attack it actually then turned into a Twitch-based action game where you had to um, you know, kill the guy. And each of the units had a different way of fighting, you know. So you had your your genie and your Pegasus and things like that. It was it was really fun. I love it, I, and I I love that you you told that story about you know loving elves and then dwarves because the shared experiences that we all have through this game, no matter how different all the gaming tables were, are, the shared experience is, is it's like nothing else. Like you can't get stuff like that out of any other hobby that I've seen other than tabletop role playing games. No, exactly. You really can't. You really can't. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about the success. I, you, honestly, you know what I was thinking yesterday? I just wanted to start the show and be like, so you, hit like six figures within an hour or two yeah and you basically won kickstarter i mean i, I know that i know you haven't uh broken any records or anything but like you won kickstarter especially for a role-playing game so what do you want to talk about um yeah you know it's funny the night before the campaign i i literally got on my knees and i prayed to god and i said you know i've put put everything i've got into this Please let it fund on day one, 50,000, and please let it hit $100,000 by the end of the campaign. Because 50,000 was the bare minimum I needed to even be able to release the books, and 100,000 was the bare minimum I needed to be able to um, pay myself a living wage for having created them. And, you know, we broke that amount in the first hour. It was, it was unbelievable. So I'm just, you know, it's incredibly, incredibly gratifying to see this level of support. Uh, well, congratulations and well earned. I think, I think over the past twelve years, you've built up a great deal of goodwill 
amongst uh, OSR players in particular, except those are the guys on Reddit and uh, and you know D and D players as a whole. I you know I've tried. Um, obviously, <laughs> there's a there's a small contingent of people who dislike me, but um, you know what can you do? Those people are wrong. <laughs> uh, you 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 got to remember that that we are we are frequent uh, visitors to the Broisar. Uh, places on the internet. We love having Jeff on and everything. So we're used to we're used to people not liking us or or talking to people that, you know, if you don't get it, you're never going to, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you guys do a really good service by letting the creators get on there. You know, I can't tell you how many big YouTube channels have have turned me down because I'm controversial, and they would, um, you know, they might upset some of their subscribers, so therefore I can't come on their channel. Uh -huh. um yeah it, it's you know which all we can really do is continue to build our own parallel economy um because so much of uh so much of the mainstream portion of it is held by um you know people who hate us we have a comment from an exceptionally smart and handsome uh viewer adam simpson says bro sr is cool thank you very much i appreciate that and so do they bro sr <laughs> Um, so talk about the system so the, a little bit. I warping the campaign is currently up to $286,548. Yes, yes, it is. It's amazing. 16 days to go, uh, and, and it so, really, it really amazes me. I mean, it amazes me too. Um, yeah. Oh, Bobby, I, uh, were you going to say something? I thought I stepped on you there. No, we can talk about the system. I, I thought that sounded interesting. I mean, uh, it's, I, it's, I, it, go ahead. Is Axe 2 still based off of uh, basic DD? I mean, do you still start with. Um, was McKenzie's assumption? Have you um, moved more towards AD and D? Um, it's neither, in a sense, in that I I kind of moved orthogonally away from D and D because I was trying to get off the open game license. Um, where it remains similar to BX is in that we use um, separate racial classes rather than the race plus class combo that you find in AD&D. &D. Um, the combat system is more complex than, le than that of BX. It's uh, less Baroque than that of AD&D. Um, &D. And note that I said Baroque and not Baroque. So I don't want to be mischaracterized in my intent. Totally um, preempted my joke. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so... And then more broadly, it just goes places no other game does. Like, you know, no other version of D&D &D lets you actually field armies of, you know, 20, 30, 50,000 on a side. You know, they say mass combat, and then they present you with one to 10 scale. And, um, you know, you can field a thousand guys. But, you know, that's just not the case with Axe. You can actually field, you could do the Battle of Kana. You could do the Battle of Arabella. You know, you could do the Battle of the Hadopsies. Um, and, and it would be great fun. So 
then we get into all the other activities and it just becomes its own its own animal it's a it's a it's a beast um rules question from bradford walker i don't think we've hit on this uh yet or, or i don't know if anybody's asked you yet what's this i hear about mecha rules for ah! and i okay. don't think don't think i didn't spot the like spider like mecha in that intro video out there on kickstarter don't think it's i missed that the mecha rules are already in by the sacks. They're under the automatons. We have multiple mecha in there. There's a power armored suit. There's a mecha suit. There's um, a jet pack. There's um, like a, a gun. So all you really need to do to reskin it for, um, you know, formal mecha is just, you know, reskin it as fusion power instead of, you know, coal powered steampunk stuff. Um, and then in, uh, in Axe Judges Journal, I've added rules for ley lines. So those who wish to play riffs will be able to do so. Oh dear. Oh dear. I have a confession to make. I have never played nor read a rifts book. Can you explain that to me? Um, Oh, what a ley line is. Any of it. Oh, sure. So, okay. So the idea of riffs is that, um, one day, uh, interdimensional riffs begin to tear open, um, onto our planet. And um, it results in war, which results in use of nuclear weapons. And then the mass death releases more psychic energy, which tears open more rifts into our world, which then leads to more mass death, which leads to more rifts. Until eventually um, the Earth is sort of partially colonized by alien races, fantasy races, weird psychic aberrations. And, um, and so you have... Um, a mix of like Robotech level technology, mecha and bounty hunters and robots and things like that combined with straight up, you know, wizards, dragons, etc. So that's riffs. It's fun. Outstanding. <clears throat> Dan Vince notes the Terran engineer is an excellent starting point for riffs techno wizard. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes, it is. My word. So so this you have taken this axe does that meme seriously uh where axe you can even do a gonzo system like you described in rifts with axe oh for like sure it. you can yeah 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 uh you know that meme actually i didn't create that meme that meme came out of my community because they were constantly dropping it on other people who were like oh why doesn't any game do this and they're like axe already does that um, and so I just leaned into it and, um, and absolutely Axe 2 is super comprehensive. Um, you could really use it for almost anything. That's a bold claim. Uh, and now full disclosure, I, I'm a backer. I've also got a print on demand of the original Axe system. And when I read through it, I decided, or I determined that it was clearly, I mean, for all the great things it does, it, it does have BX as its starting point. And at the time I was playing AD&D and I, I didn't need to switch systems. But I didn't get the sense that it does everything. Axe 1 is, didn't do everything. So yeah. what are the things, or, or could you point at least one thing that you added to solve, to add one of those new features or solve a problem that you're really proud of that you say, wow, I, now I can do rifts in X, for example. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, naval combat was a really big one. Um, so, you know, Axe one had basically 
retro clone, the BX rules for naval combat. Acts two, we have dozens of different ship types. We have ways to customize your ships. We have ways to put Greek fire, boarding ramps, catapults, all the things. We have uh, you know points of sale, gallery under or full ship combat rules. Um, it's really good fun. So that's one example. People have been asking for that for ages. Um, fully revamped mercantile system, fully revamped mass combat system, fully revamped strongholds and domain system. Um, yeah, and now uh, other things that we're missing. So now we have a weather system um, that'll dynamically generate appropriate weather based on the climate code and the season. Um, we've got uh, with game effects of all of the different um, weather types, we've got, um, formal rules for sea journeys now and like um you know discovering like hidden pirate islands and things like that so that you can do the sort of zero prep play that people really enjoy with hex crawls and we have those we have separate tables for both you know um wilderness and uh and ocean exploration uh, we have rules for dynamically generating a city if you want to do a zero prep city and just roll up the buildings and the inhabitants and the and the um encounters that occur in the city like I mean, it, it it it's kind of it's kind of goofy how much it does. Oh, that's amazing, uh, and it's it's one of those things that. And you mentioned the zero prep dungeons and wilderness exploration and everything. That's one of the things that keeps coming back to us as we play AD and D. <clears throat> I'm still uh, playing and refing in the Trilopolis campaign, uh -huh. uh, AD and D first edition, uh, and it seems that every couple of months we come up with some little corner case or rule or some second order effect of the rules in there that makes us go, wow, this game is even better than we thought. It does this and it does that. Did you consciously try to achieve parity with stuff in AD&D, uh, sort of the things that uh, people have been rediscovering? Um, or did you come at it I guess you'd say orthogonally or from another different perspective where you just said, I just want to solve this problem. And you just happen to be able to claim, yeah, we do that too. Well, so I think people sometimes talk about the phrase Gygaxian naturalism, <clears throat> excuse me. And they talk about how Gygax was, you know, an insurance actuary at one point in his career. And so he was used to thinking about how to define, um, you know, game worlds in terms of risks and uh, tables and charts and things like that. So, um, and I think my mind is probably wired kind of similar to how his mind was wired. And so I absolutely, as I was developing Acts 2, you know, I wanted it to be a game that you could put on a bookshelf next to AD&D and say, this is a worthy successor to AD&D. Now, in actual gameplay, AD&D and Acts end up different in that the characters in AD&D become more powerful. Um, especially the wizards, much more powerful than those in Axe. At Axe, you cap out at the level where you're Conan. You're, you know, you're a badass, um, but you're not Randall Thor or something like that. Um, whereas in AD and D, you can you can get more powerful than that. And the implication of that is that in AD and D, the major conflicts are resolved, um, you know, essentially by heroes and wizards. Whereas in Axe, the major conflicts are resolved by armies led by and supported by heroes and wizards which is a very different vibe. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's a, a a wizard on the battlefield with ice storm and wall of fire and all those goody, good spells uh, is a force to be reckoned with, but uh, a much higher level wizard with access to wish is 
a completely different beast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got it. Got it. So, and, and I wasn't completely aware of that, that, that uh, you had tr I, truncated their power levels. Was it, is that a fair word to use? Yeah. So what happened is in Axe, it caps out at 14th level. And 14th level means you're the best in the entire continent, right? So there's 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 no one better. You're Conan, you're Gandalf, whatever, 14th level. And there's only going to be one of each class of 14th level, maybe two if it's a really common class like fighter. Um, then, you know, you'll have one to three of 13th level, you know, you'll have two to four or maybe five of the 12th level down scales down like that. So like if you're a wizard at the top of your profession, you can count on two hands, like the very top wizards in the setting. Um, and they're all going to be around that, you know, basically 11th to 14th level. And then when you get down to ninth level, they're still very powerful, but there's roughly like one ninth level sorcerer or mage, um, you know, for each, uh, roughly each province let's say you know so that ninth level you're like the you know you're like the best uh the best mage in the province um and uh you never get spells higher than sixth level except through rituals and with rituals you can do seventh eighth and ninth but they take weeks and are very expensive um and so you can cast wish but you know you don't cast wish from your ninth level spell slot you know three times a day you cast wish by doing an important and powerful ritual I see. I see. And uh, that makes sense. Um, I, I That definitely has to be something where I have to try it to really uh, understand whether it works or not. But uh, that sounds like let me let me approach this. Let me approach my thought or my question in a different way. Uh, good games. I, I include AD&D. AD&D is probably the best example, but good games. Uh, their rules and and uh, and tables and things, if you will, they imply and they imply a setting and they imply a world. And mm -hmm. when you play by those rules, that world is created, or an instance of that world is created. You know, a mm -hmm. great example yep. being the <clears throat> you know the wilderness encounter tables in even BX or AD and D. Uh, you can sort of envision what types of worlds come out of that. And if you wanted to create, make that world your own, just edit the tables mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, stick your own monsters in and, and, you know, you've changed what type of game it is. And there's other things that imply, imply details about the settings, such as the assassin, uh, the high level assassins and the high level druids or the high-level monks, where there's only a few of those. And if you want to attain 14th-level assassin, you actually have to kill the current Grandmaster of Assassins and take over his business. Right, right. Um, what kind of stuff, if any, have you put into Acts 2? Or, to ask a different the same question a different way, what sort of world is implied by the Acts rule set? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the world of Acts 2 is approximately the world of late antiquity. So you have a lot of uh, cities and urban dwellers, um, but you also have a vast pool of oppressed peasants who are, um, uh, you know, ranging from slaves to um, coloni, uh, helots, etc. Um, you still have a population density, which is, you know, um, 
on around the overall continent, like less than 50 people per square mile. So like much less than medieval France, for instance, which was at over 100 people per square mile. Um, you still have plenty of wild areas that are unexplored on the borders and you have um, kind of exotic foreign civilizations around the perimeter. That's the that's the implied setting of um, Acts 2. And if you just use the rules exactly as written kind of straight up, that's what you'll get. But I do what I do is I make explicit what uh, levers in the game drive that outcome. And I tell you where to change them if you want. So, for instance, if you want to have, um, you know, larger cities then you would just adjust the percentage of the population that lives in cities and then that'll change the average wage rate of city dwellers. And it'll change the average population of the cities, which in turn will push them to a higher market class, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you want to have um, more more commerce, you know, you set up more trade routes between the cities, and that tends to keep them uh, that tends to make the trade more efficient and less um, uh, less profitable. On the other hand, if you put cities without a trade route and you put a lot of unsettled wilderness in between, then the trade is going to be really dangerous but really profitable. And this is all explained in the judges' journal. Um, how to how to set it all up. So the judge's journal, that's your equivalent to the dungeon master's guide? Yeah. 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 Oh, and and you say that's it's spelled out. Is there is like a whole section dedicated to that, or is that sort of sprinkled throughout the sections? Like here, here's how I explain this system, and then at the end or in the middle, like here's a footnote. Here's how you can tweak it. Um no, it's it's definitely sprinkled throughout. Uh, after I introduce Juice each sub-mechanic, I'll offer design notes on how you can tweak it if you want to. Um, although there is one section of the judge's journal, which is just, an, it's an entire part. It's four chapters of just customization where it's like, here's how you customize spells. Here's how you customize races. Here's how you customize classes. Here's how you customize magic. Here's a bunch of other custom rules for your campaign. So that's one entire section. Then there's a section on world building. And that's where a lot of the implicit setting comes in. And I and I actually go into great detail to explain, like, um, so as an example, what I recommend when you're setting up your campaign is that you have two enemies. You have an open and obvious threat, and then you have a secret um, existential threat. So if you think of Game of Thrones, the open obvious threat is that um, the king is dead, uh, the various sub-kingdoms are at war, and the uh, Empress of Dragons is threatening to invade. But the hidden threat, the existential threat, is the others coming down from the north under the Night King to wreck the whole world. And so then, I then what I say is that you should you should think of your nobles as um, essentially the sort of self-interested bastards that you read about in history who, you know, cause the Roman Empire to um, to collapse because they assassinate Stilicho even though he was their best general. That kind of thing. So make your NPCs range from useless to evil. And so then you get this gameplay effect where the players go out on adventures and they start to discover the truth of this existential threat that's rising, just like Jon Snow discovers the others, right? And then you come back to civilization. You're like, hey, Mr. Lord, Patrician, Bob, um, you know, we've got this really big danger. And he, you know, laughs at you over his banquet table and says, get out of my, get out of my villa. You know, um, I'm, I'm focused on winning this other, this other conflict, blah, blah, blah. And that in turn is what incentivizes the players to conquer. Because they, what I found from playtesting is that a lot of modern players sort of lack a Genghis Khanian merciless desire to conquer just for the sake of conquest. And they want to feel like they're the good guys as they do that. So in order for the players to feel like the good guys, you have to make the setting feel like it's currently run by shitheads and, um, and that they need to conquer it for the greater good.
So anyway, I go into all of that in the book, but oh, that's pretty, interesting. I think I think tight, someone's tightly explained. Uh, I, I like it. I, I think someone smarter than me can probably draw a lot of interesting conclusions about modern man or the, or the average man from that playtest experience. Uh, but you know, where's that, where's that, uh, where's that drive to conquer? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, that's cool. I, and I love that you sort of get into the design, you know, into the design notes and let them know, Hey, this is, this is how I arrived at this. This is what I'm thinking. This is how you can change it. Um, and I hadn't, I hadn't considered that before because the, you know, once again, going back to all the gaming we've done in the past 20 40 years you know people don't really play that domain game you know broadly speaking people don't play that uh, it's not in the role-playing game dna anymore we gotta you know to try to reintroduce that you sort of have to poke them with a stick and say hey you know these these npc lords and kings and things they're actually they're replaceable by you so yeah. go at it yeah, exactly, exactly, and in and in my campaigns, it's it's actually played out just like that, and um, it was actually kind of funny because um, there's been a tendency in the axe community, which I think I've since corrected, but initially there was a tendency in the axe community that because I offered a rule, people assume that therefore that's what they were supposed to do, and and whereas my thought was I'm offering a menu of rules so that you can do all of these different things. And so because I offered rules for going out into the wilderness and founding a domain away from civilization on the frontier, people thought, oh, that must be what I was supposed to do. But I was like, well, the name of the game is not Adventurer Settler King, it's Adventurer Conqueror King. Um, so I've really endeavored in the second edition to make that more clear that going off to the frontier is just one of many options. And um, the players know very clearly that they can get what they want by taking it from those who already have it. And the judge, it's explained how to set up the world to make that work. Just so, if there were, um, if there were, uh, and, and I know you have your own version of Appendix N, but uh, what are some of the works that you think epitomize um, the X approach to um, to fantasy? Well, it's funny because a lot of the authors that inspired me the most um, when I started writing Axe back in 2011 have disappointed me in the intervening era. But certainly Game of Thrones was a big inspiration. And also um, R. Scott Baker's Prince of Nothing and Aspect Emperor series was a big inspiration. Um, uh, all of David Gemmell's books with the mass battles and things and that. Um, and the name itself comes from Conan, uh, the, um, the ace slash lance paperbacks from the 60s that was like Conan the Adventurer, Conan the Conqueror, Conan the Usurper, etc. Um, that inspired the, the name itself. Uh, Lord of the Rings has been another big inspiration, obviously. Um, the, first, the first book of the Earthsea series, A Wizard of Earthsea, is a favorite. Um, but... I would say in turn, oh, and uh, Joe Abercrombie's first law series is a favorite. Um, I would say in terms of like, what does the game play closest to out of the gate? The answer is probably um, uh, R. Scott Baker's Aspect Emperor series, um, Prince of Nothing. 
yeah, is probably the closest literary analog. Prince of Nothing. I'll make a note of that. Never heard of it. So I can't recommend it to you because the last book of the series was so bad that it actually sent a tachyon wave back in time to ruin the preceding books um, <laughs> and undid my 15-year fandom in absolute disgust where I took the books off my shelf. So I can't strictly recommend it to you. Um, because of that perfidious treachery on the part of the author, who, by the way, did it deliberately and went on Reddit and laughed at his fans for being upset about it. So, I'm going to make a note of that, jerk. the first part. Go ahead. He deliberately ruined the ending of his series? Well, he didn't, quote, ruin it from his perspective. He delivered the ending he wanted to deliver. So the, I guess, so to tell you, R. Scott Baker is a philosopher by trade and his philosophy is um, he believes that uh, human, human cognition consciousness is essentially non-existent. Um, we are meat robots. And so nothing actually has any meaning. And um, so he wanted the book to ultimately be meaningless. Nihilism never, not even once. Yeah. That's a shame. Um, I had another question for the chat. Apologies. I lost it again. Um, heading back to the Kickstarter. Uh, Adam Simpson asks that you had some Kickstarter troubles. Is everything good with Kickstarter? Um, yeah, I think I'm fine on Kickstarter. I, I hope I haven't had too many troubles. Um, you know, um, there were some, there were some, um, you know, negative people trying to uh, attack me, but I think it's fine. Knock on wood. Very well. Block yes, break yes, yes, there will be. Uh, it's on my to-do list. I've got the books on hand, so I'm going to get them restocked. Yeah. So Ascension needs a restock? Uh, no, I mean, I have the books in the fulfillment house. I just haven't updated the website. Got it. Yeah. Got it. That's another one. That's another one that passed me by. Uh, I love that there's more games it's just like getting, you know, if, if you're a movie fan, when you realize, oh, I literally cannot watch all the movies that have been made in my lifetime. Yeah, uh, it's just wild, so right? much good gaming, uh, so much good gaming that uh, I, I'm I'm sad I missed out on Ascendant, but superheroes aren't my bag. Uh, and and I hope everybody who likes superheroes has checked out Ascendant. I hope so. Um, yeah. I I got a, another question. I'm going <laughs> to, I hope he's talking about Axe or Minecraft. Um, how long would it take to conquer an unsettled area to bring it up to a city? It, do you think you can answer that? Obviously, in, you can answer that in game terms, but in also uh, real life playtime. Wait, so ask again. What's the question exactly? How long would it take to conquer an unsettled area to bring it up to a city? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, it would depend how much cash you had on hand because you can invest gold into um, agricultural improvements and urban investment which increase your population and your um and your market class so if you let's say for instance you were some barbarians on the outskirts of a major wealthy empire and you were gleefully plundering their wealth um, you could absolutely direct that back into your 
your wilderness domain and um and and grow it pretty much what the mongols did right like you know they went they the mongols ended up with this capital city of xanadu um etc cetera, etc cetera, uh essentially on the backs of of um pillage um i would say it would probably take five years of in-game time um or about 60 sessions yeah wow yeah uh, so that is quite an investment especially if you're playing one-to-one -one time yeah acts you can play acts one-to-one time but if you do you're going to be limited in the scope of what you can um accomplish because uh, a typical a typical axe adventure can adventure about once a month um, because of the necessity of getting injured and recovering from downtime, tampering with mortality rolls. There's all these things that basically it works out to about one adventure a month. And so a typical campaign lasts over a period of, you know, anywhere from three to eight years in game. Mm. So if, if so, if you wanted to try and do a one to one scale game, you could do it. But you would be playing at a much slower pace than um, than a traditional axe campaign. Now, the one to one has a lot of advantages because it lets you coordinate between um, different uh, players on different time zones who are all doing their own thing. So I, I get why people would do that. The trade off is you'll progress a little slower. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, uh, actually, I had a question. I'm stealing a question from Twitter, uh, and I'm just going to ask it for JD Salvage. I don't know if he's listening, but um, he asks, is there an option to do hard spell slots and preparation, but also risk versus reward casting from the repertoire? Like, could you cast from your unprepared repertoire, but you have to expand re expend resources and risk complications like dark fantasy mutations? So uh, there are overcasting rules for when you are out of spells and you wish to, um, you know, push your luck. So those are absolutely in the game. Um, what are uh, not present is any type of prepared fancy and casting. The way it works in Axe is you have a repertoire of spells, which is based on either your god and pantheon or your spell books. And you can free cast any spells from your spell book at the appropriate level from the spell slot. So if you've got three first level spells, you don't have to pick them at the beginning of the day. Uh, you can cast three spells from your repertoire of first level spells. So maybe you do slumber three times, Maybe you do discern magic, then mage missile, then slumber. You know, who knows? But it's up to you. You don't need to pick in advance. Um, and then with overcasting, you can push that. So you're like, I'm going to do a fourth one. I'm going to do a fifth one. And, you know, and then you can have risky consequences and tragic outcomes. Cool. Cool. I'll uh, I'll tell JD on Twitter to, that he's to come watch the show replay later. Um, and, and I... That did not go by me. Those are excellent spell examples of slumber, discern magic, and mage missile. I now understand what took away your summer. My oh, goodness. Yeah. Yep. My goodness. Yep. And there was a lot of other work actually went into it as well. Um, because I had to customize um the power level of magic to make it work with the game world that I wanted. And let me explain what I mean by that. If magic is too powerful, um, then it replaces technology and combat looks more like World War II or modern warfare, where you've got, you know, attack griffins and um, stealth pegasuses and um, armored giants with invulnerability spells. And, you know, what you don't have are phalanxes of hoplites. Um, you know, 
you don't have mass troop formations. On the other hand, if you have no magic, then you have those things. So what I did is I went and did a bunch of historical research and what was the last era where you actually had essentially deep phalanx-like formations deployed on the battlefield, but you also had cannon that could wipe out a bunch of dudes at once, which is the equivalent of fireballs. And that was the Napoleonic era. And so I very carefully tuned the magic so that the power level of the magic of, um, of the sort of mage you might find at the company level was about the power level of a cannon. And um, that leads to a result where a high level axe battle with tens of thousands of people on the side is very similar to an ancient battle only with kind of Napoleonic cannon being added into the mix. Um, which is just enough to make it interesting and different for fantasy purposes, but not so much that you don't actually have, um, uh, uh, you know, mass troop formations, mass combat, huge armies. And then for some of the more specialty troops, I looked at World War One because World War One was interesting because it's the only war where you had, um, you still had cavalry forces, but you also had uh, single pilot aircraft. Um, with small arms, you know, like your early airplanes were single pilot and they literally used their small arms to fight from. And so what I did is I priced the difference between a war horse in World War One and a, an early um, airplane in World War One, And then that became the difference in price between traditional cavalry and Pegasi mounted cavalry. Oh, right? cool. Yeah. So like tons of research to sort of get the world to be the way it needs to be, all of which required vast spreadsheets and careful calibration and a lot of head-breaking stuff. And as the player and the GM, you don't need to do any of that. I've done it all for you. But that's why it just works. Uh, that's a great selling point, honestly. Uh, we have we have done the heavy lifting for you. And yes. um, that reminds me of something, and I don't know I don't know if this is interesting to you or anyone else, but you know, we've we've been playing role-playing games and and you know, talking with online communities and players and everything for years and years and years. And you're a heavy simulationist guy, and mm -hmm. you've talked. You, I know you've encountered so many people. We've encountered so many people that really do care about whether, you know, a nine millimeter does a D six or a D six plus one in Cyberpunk 2020. Like they really want to get that down to the nitty gritty, um, and. I mean, I don't know. How do I put this? I think, I think they all sort of dreamed of doing something like what you've done with Axe, where you actually have taken the time to go through. Did you, did, have you hit the level of detail? Are you satisfied with the level of detail in all of your systems? Or to put it another way, how much of this stuff, how much of the stuff have you sort of um, made, kept simple or made simpler just for, the sake of making it gameable. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely an art rather than a science um, because you have, um, let me see if I can explain it. I, I talked about this in my in one of my YouTube videos, but so uh, have you guys ever seen the movie Oliver Stone's Alexander? About Alexander the Great? Okay. So there's this really great YouTube video where a professional military historian watches the movie Alexander. 
And you just see he has this great delight as he's watching it. And he's like calling out which military units are which military units and talking about the costumes that they're wearing and the way they're fighting. And it's all correct. And he says, this is the closest we've ever come to what it was really like. This, this is it. You know, this is the realism. And he's just delighted. So if you think about that emotion, I call that the noetic appreciation of verisimilitude, right? It's the pleasure you get from the sense that it's real. And it's the opposite of suspension of disbelief. When So suspension of disbelief, you have to pretend things uh, that you know are false. You have to pretend that they're true in order to enjoy the product. With noetic appreciation of verisimilitude, you get to remember the things that you know are true in order to better appreciate the product. So I think simulation has a bunch of virtues. Um, it creates coherency. It makes it easier for the players to understand the causality of the world. Um, it makes it easier to fill in the blanks because you can assume they work the way they naturally would given everything else that you've mentioned. But simulation also creates the possibility of the noetic appreciation of verisimilitude of the world. And so the question is, how much do you want to push that versus other types of enjoyment? An example would be going back to the Oliver Stone movie. If you imagine that the Oliver Stone movie was literally just showing off historical costumes and fighting tactics, and it didn't have good acting and plot and story and spectacle, then people would be like, oh, this movie isn't that good. Like, I guess it's kind of okay for a documentary. So you want to have all the elements. You want to have the spectacle, the drama, the plot, the characters, and also the verisimilitude. So likewise with the game design. Um, so, you know, here's an example of... Um, of of where I drew the line. So I did a bunch of research into like what the actual armor class could be calculated as for partial armor over your body of all different materials, the exact jewels of force that various weapons demonstrated, the declining damage of arrows over time. It's a whole Axioms article I wrote. Super fun, explains basically the physics of the axe um, combat system. But at the end of the day, what's in the book is much simpler than what's in that Axioms article. Um, it, it's, it's roll to hit, roll damage. Whereas, you know, in the Axioms article, it's like, you can use, you know, the coefficient of hardness of the hammered iron, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. So, um, so my preference is to keep the game aspect that's player facing fast and streamlined to then open up the engine for the game master so that he can tinker to his heart's content. And then to have myself have done all of the really hard work for everyone. And that's my approach. Love it. And and along those same lines, uh, obviously that gives a ton of room for a DM who loves prep and does that for its own sake to sort of flesh out their axe world if uh, mm -hmm. if that if that's the game they're playing. Uh, what's what's the minimum investment for a DM? Like, what about a DM that just wants to play once or twice a week and doesn't have time for anything else but having his buddies over for a couple oh. hours? You can absolutely play it with minimal prep if that's what you want to do. Just grab a grab a dungeon from any um, any retro clone, or roll one up yourself and just start playing. Right, like you don't have to um, start by building the entire world. Um, you know, world building is kind of a separate function that you can do if you want to do it, if you enjoy it, if it's going to be a major interest for you. Um, the other thing you can do is just use the pre-existing R and Empire campaign setting in the R and Empire series of adventures, which will level your characters up by following those. So, um, you know, it's it's very easy. Like when I started running Axe uh, campaigns, like I've I've literally started them with just like, hey, roll up characters and here's the dungeon. Let's go. 
That's old school for you. Yeah. Uh, one more question. We'll take one more from the chat. Bradford Walker asks, man, you love your Exalted. Uh, what what do you think would be done to uh, the Axe rules to make Axe something he'd use to play Exalted? Are you familiar uh, with Exalted? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with Exalted. So that's a great question. Um, a lot of people have asked me about that. And I think, honestly, if I was going to do a game of godlike powers, I would do it using the um, Ascendant rule set rather than the Axe rule set. Not because I don't love Axe, I do, um, but because Ascendant is really designed to handle godlike powers. And um, so my thought has been I might do a game called Empyrean, where it would be a fantasy Ascendant, um, you know, where you're playing Hercules, uh, Ares level, um, level heavy hitters, and, you know, fighting gods and titans. Um, which I, which I, from what I can tell, is kind of the power level of Exalted. I've never played an Exalted campaign. I just I own the first edition rulebook and thought it was pretty cool. So. Cool. Uh, I, I I never played myself. I know a guy who loved it, and uh, from what he said, I think uh, I think Ascendant is probably the right way to go there. Um, we are. We're, let's start wrapping up here. Uh, I also want to be respectful of your time. Because you're on the East Coast, uh, War Pig, uh, your opportunity for more questions for Alexander. I'm good. You're good. All right. Uh, you know what? Floor is yours. Anything else you want to talk about, or anything you want to say? Um. Yeah. I, you know, I'll just say this. Right. Like Adventure Conquer King System Imperial Imprint isn't for everybody, but for the people that it's for, it's the very best fantasy game you're ever going to play. If you want that depth, if you want that breadth, if you want that adventurer to king cycle, if you want to be able to take your hero or your archmage and plug, plug them into mass battles in a way that no other game lets you do, if you want to run a thieves guild or um, you know a flotilla of merchant ships or anything you can imagine, you know Axe uh, Axe can do it. And um, and I'm I'm really proud of what we've created, and I'm I'm really gratified by the community support for it. So. Hopefully, um, it's being of a golden age for fantasy simulationists and domain play. Knock on wood. Well said. Uh, I can't top that. I'm I backed it. I'm looking forward to it, uh, and I'm glad you were able to come on and talk to us about it and uh, everything that we talked about today. Uh, oh, one more thing uh, on that Kickstarter. Don't forget to check it out on Kickstarter. And uh, you do need to. You have to check it as an option when you make your bid. Um, you have to check the poplar slipcase. It doesn't just come automatically with everything. So don't forget to get that. Can't have those books on the shelf by themselves, you know. That poplar slipcase, everybody loves it. <laughs> um, uh, well, then I'm, I'm done for this week. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it was great talking to you. I really appreciate it. We had a nice, lively chat live. Good to see you guys back. I'm glad to be back on the show after uh, that month break. And I hope to do many, many more with everybody. Um, special thanks to Alexander McCreese. Uh, best of luck with the remainder of the uh, with of the Kickstarter. And Daddy Warpig, uh, best co-host ever. Uh, thanks so much. Take it away. All right, folks. Uh, we want to thank everyone who listened live. Uh, and we want to thank everyone who will listen later. This has been Geek Gab for Monday, November 6, 2000. 2023. You can check us out on youtube.com slash geekgab. Once again, that's youtube.com slash geekgab. Feel free to 
subscribe and uh, click the little bell icon to get announcements as to when we are going live. We are here just about every Monday at about the same time. That is, uh, oh, 7 p.m. Pacific, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern. And uh, you can also on the Apple iTunes store, the Google Play store, and on SoundCloud.com so you can download us to the device of your choice or listen to us on the web. Just do a search for Geek Gab and you can subscribe on any one of those places. Folks, we are signing out for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.